Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've started a new church year. Uh, the new church year start, always starts on the first Sunday of Advent. So this is a new church year. That means we're, we're done with the Bible in a year thing that we did for, for all of last church year. We're through all 66 books. That means we're back onto the lectionary, back onto our prescribed readings for the, uh, uh, for the Sundays in Advent at least. And uh, uh, it means we can preach on whatever we want. It's exciting. It's very freeing. So it won't come as any surprise that I'm going to use our Old Testament reading because, I mean, it's, yeah, it's from Isaiah, exactly. You guys know that. <laughs> that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, but this, and you won't be surprised to hear me say this either, but this is a great reading. It's a great reading, especially for the Advent season, because, you know, Advent is, of course, leading up to Christmas, right? Uh, but really, the season of Advent is a time when we, we reflect on what it means to wait for Jesus to come. And so we reflect on what it was like to wait for Jesus before he came on the first Christmas, but we all also reflect on what it's like to be the church now, waiting for Jesus to come back. And, and so what I want to do this morning is, is kind of walk through this reading verse by verse and just sort of unpack it with you. And along the way, we're going we're gonna to find a whole bunch of things that are going to be useless in the new creation. Uh, so let's, let's start. We'll start with verse 1. Whoops. And verse 1 says, uh, The word that Isaiah the son of Amotz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah was a prophet. You probably know that already. He, he was a prophet, but he wasn't just any kind of prophet. He was what we call a court prophet. And what that means is he was somebody who would proclaim things to the kings. And some of them listened, and many of them didn't. But Isaiah's job was the same either way. His job was to speak God's word as God revealed it to him. The, the prophetic office in the Old Testament is actually a lot like what it is to be a pastor today because the prophets were preachers. You know, their job was to do what we as Lutherans now call law and gospel. So their job was to, uh, to take God's word and when, when God's people were, were sinning was to call them out on their sin. And it was also to bring the comfort of the gospel to repentant sinners. That's what they did. And it's really kind of subtle, but this is the first verse in our reading that we, uh, that we get, a, get a glimpse of Jesus, that points us toward what's coming when Jesus returns. So in the Old Testament, when you heard a prophet preach, or now in the age of the church, when you hear a pastor preach, like, of course, me right now, um, they're proclaiming God's word. And that's a good thing. It's an important thing. It's, it's a gift of God, these offices that God works through. But you are hearing God's word through someone else. When you heard a prophet speak or when you hear, hear a, a pastor preach. But there's a verse in what I usually call John's Christmas story, John chapter 1, that I want to share with you. It's verse 14, and it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When you hear a pastor preach, you're hearing God's word through somebody else. But when you heard Jesus preach, the people who were there for the Sermon on the Mount, they were hearing God's word from God himself. On the last day when Jesus comes back, we're all going to be hearing God's word from God himself. You know, now it's kind of like watching a game on TV as opposed to watching it in person. You see the game either way, right? But it's better to be there in person. It's going to be better to be there when we can hear Jesus speaking himself. Pastor Brandon said this in Bible study uh, a couple weeks ago, and I never really thought about it this way, but 
uh, he said, you know who's going to be out of a job in the new creation? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> Pastors and prophets are going to be useless in the new creation. There's not going to be any need for us because we're going to have Jesus. You know, we're going to have the ultimate pastor. We're going to have the ultimate prophet with us forever. So what, this is this kind of the introduction, right? And what does Isaiah see? This talks about Isaiah seeing stuff. What does he see? Here's what he sees. This is verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. See that phrase at the beginning, in the latter days? That's an important phrase when, when you're interpreting these verses. And one of the key questions here is, what does that mean? What are the latter days? Remember that question, because we'll come back to it in the next verse. But here, what he's talking about in verse 2 is mainly the last day, the resurrection, the new creation, what things are going to look like after Jesus comes back. And to really get what he's telling us here, you got to kind of understand what the mountains were in the ancient Near East. Uh, they were home of the gods. So think, uh, think the Greeks and Mount Olympus, right? That Mount Olympus is where the Greek gods lived. Or if you think the Canaanites, remember their god was Baal, and so Mount Zaphon is where Baal lived all the time. The gods lived in the mountains. So the picture here is that one day, on the last day, our god is going to be the god. Now, we know he's the God already, right? He's the only God who has any real existence. But on the last day, our God is going to be lifted up above all the other so-called gods in the world. In other words, on the last day, it's not just going to be pastors and prophets that are useless. It'll be idols, too. Now, when you hear the word idols, uh, at least my brain always goes to the little statues that they used to worship, and some people still do uh, today. And that's not wrong. It's just not the complete picture of what the Bible means when it says idols. So in the small catechism, Luther says the first commandment is that we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. An idol is anything that we fear, love, and trust in above God. In other words, anything that we put as first in our life. So, you know, money can be an idol, status can be an idol, success can be an idol, and those are all things that we kind of look at negatively. Uh, and think that it's bad if those things are first in our life. But there's a lot of things that we would look at as good that could be idols too. If you're a student, being a good student, getting good grades, that can be an idol. If you're a parent, being a good parent can be an idol. Being a good church member can be an idol. Being a good pastor can be an idol. All those things are idols. And if you put those things as first in your life, it is, if it is the most important thing to you, those things will never, ever be satisfied. Because idols always say is that the best you can do, is that the most you can give, is that really all you have. And so if any of these things are your idols or anything else either, they're going to demand absolutely everything from you. You can never have enough money or success or status. You always want a little bit more. You can never be a good enough student. You can never be a good enough parent. You can never be a good enough church member. You can never be a good enough pastor. Idols always take, and they will take everything from you. And they will ultimately leave you with nothing, because they ultimately have no real existence. But think about what this verse is promising. On the last day, 
all those things that take everything from us, all those idols, they're going to be gone forever. The bad ones will go away forever, and the good ones, like being a student and being a parent and being a church member, those things are all going to be put in their proper place. They're going to be in the right place in our lives. Because the most important thing is going to be the God who doesn't take, who doesn't demand anything for, from us. The God who gives us absolutely everything. The God who gave us Jesus. The God who gave us his very life. The God who gave us our lives. Some of us right there at that baptismal font. The God who gives us everything and who through Jesus gives us a place in the new creation also where the idols that do nothing but take will be gone and they'll be replaced by the God who gives. That's the picture of verse 2. So here's verse 3. Isaiah goes on and he said, says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, or a better translation there is the teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is what Isaiah says in verse 3. Now here's the question. If the last verse was talking about the latter days as the new creation, what's this verse talking about? Is it talking about the same thing or not? And I think Isaiah is doing something here that you may have noticed when we read through the prophets. It's something that a lot of the prophets do, and it's that they talk about two points in God's timeline of salvation at the same time. So they won't distinguish between earthly Jerusalem and the church as Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. They'll just say Jerusalem, and they'll mean all of those things at the same time, and I think that's what Isaiah is doing right here. In, Isaiah, in the last verse, it mainly was talking about the last day, but let me read you these verses from Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, this is the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, and listen to this part, in these last days, or in these latter days, we could translate it, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, he spoke to us through Jesus. See, the Bible sees these latter days, these last days, as beginning with Jesus, as beginning with when, when he comes to earth, and he teaches, and he dies, and he rises, and he ascends. And here in Isaiah 2, Isaiah is talking about both of those things at the same time. He's talking about the last day, and he's also talking about the day of the church right now. And what I mean is, on the last day, this is going to be true. Everybody in all creation is going to come to God. But I think this is such a great Advent verse, or these verses are such great Advent verses, because they tie together something that's happening now already in the church with something that's going to happen on the last day as well. See, starting with Acts chapter 10, that's the first conversion of the Gentiles. Starting with Acts chapter 10, when the first Gentiles are converted, the nations are coming to the house of God. The nations have started coming to the church in Acts chapter 10. And there's pretty good evidence that that has continued. In fact, the evidence is sitting on your left and on your right. We're sitting in this church building with a bunch of Gentiles on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, the nations are coming to the house of God. That's why we're here on the other side of the world, worshiping the God of Israel today, this Sunday morning. See, when you were baptized, you weren't just forgiven. You weren't just justified. You were brought to God. You were made a new person. You were grafted into the people of God. 
And you were also given purpose and you were given mission in Christ. In your baptism, God called you his child, but he also called you his heir and he also called you his representative. He also called you to go and make disciples of all nations. He called you to be his mouthpiece on the earth. This prophecy, you know, it's being fulfilled in the here and now. And you can see the evidence of it in this room. It's being fulfilled in the Holy Spirit's work in the church, which means it's being fulfilled in his work in you, in your heart, but also through you, through the words of your mouth. One more really beautiful gospel thing, by the way, about this verse before we move on is uh, it talks about the mountain of God. And in the Old Testament, the mountain of God, it's Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is Jerusalem, the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple sat. Um, and so that's what it's referring to. He's talking about the temple, but he doesn't use the word temple here. In fact, he doesn't use it at all uh, in these verses. He uses a different word. You see that? It was in the last verse too. He used the word house. And it's a significant word. Here's what uh, the commentator named Alec uh, Motier, he's a real smart guy, and he says this, a temple is primarily a place for worship. A house is primarily where God comes to live with his people. In the new creation, temples are going to be useless also because God is going to dwell with us. In fact, Revelation says that directly. John is looking into the new creation, and here's what he says. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In other words, Emmanuel, God with us, the thing that we cling to here at Christmas, it is here, and it is with us right now, but it is completely fulfilled on the last day. And what's the result? Here's the result. This is uh, verse 4. Isaiah says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a powerful picture. In fact, this is probably the most famous verse in the book of Isaiah outside the church. Isaiah 53 is probably more famous inside the church. But this uh, verse has been the subject of monuments and statues and things like that all over the United States, at least, probably all over the world. It's a very famous verse because it's such a beautiful picture. When God is with us, he does justice so perfectly that swords and spears become useless. We don't need them anymore. And we won't need him anymore in the coming peace. But it's not just that. See, that's not all that Isaiah says here. He could have said that very easily that way. All tools of destruction are useless. In fact, the only violence that's done in these verses is against the tools of violence. And look what they're turned into. They're not just thrown away. They're turned into tools of creation. And imagine that for just a second. All of the intelligence and the research and the time that we spend trying to figure out how to hurt and kill each other. In the new creation, we're going to use that same time and intelligence and research to produce and to create and to uplift and to edify. Isaiah is painting a picture here of life the way that it was meant to be lived in a world without sin. And that's the world that's promised to us in Jesus. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus reconciles all things to himself, quote, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
Any peace that you and I make here in the world or our nations make here in the world is always going to be temporary. It's always going to be tenuous. But the peace in Christ, the peace that passes all understanding and the peace that we're going to know on the last day, it's the only peace that is unbreakable and unending. So here's how Isaiah closes. He closes this section and he closes our reading for today with verse 5. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's an exhortation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for us to live in a certain way. See, walk in the Bible, it doesn't just mean walk, like physically walk someplace. It means live our lives. And so Isaiah is inviting the Israelites and he's inviting us too to live our lives in light of the promise that we've been given. He's inviting us to live our lives as people of faith. And there's a reminder here. Remember just a couple of verses ago, he talks about uh, the nations streaming to Mount Zion, to God's mountain in order to learn what God has to say. Well, here Isaiah is reminding us of something that as God's people, we've already got the stuff that they're looking for in that verse. We have it right now. He reminds us, Isaiah reminds us and he encourages us. He says, live as children of the light. One good example of, of uh, this goes like this. I was at a funeral once and uh, I was talking to the family and I, and I heard some stories about the person who was deceased that frankly kind of surprised me and they must have seen that I looked sort of confused because one of the family members as we were standing there talking said to me, a lot changed in his life when he came to faith. And what changed, I think, was that the man had found peace in God that had eluded him everywhere else. He'd found peace in the promise that was given. See, the promise in verse 4 of the peace on the last day, that's ours no matter what. But by faith, we grasp onto that promise, not just somewhere in the future. And Isaiah reminds us that we're not just waiting for it in the distant future. God brings it to us right now. <clears throat> he brought it to us in the waters of our baptism. He brings it to us in the spoken word. He brings it to us in the words of absolution, the words of forgiveness. He brings it to us in, in his body and blood, in, with, and under the bread and wine at Holy Communion. The one who breaks all darkness also breaks our darkness with his life and with his light. And that's every day, and it's every night, and it's all the time. So Zion, come. Just like the Israelites, let us walk in the light of the Lord this Advent and this Christmas and this lifetime. Amen. Now may the peace of God that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds, keeping them steadfast in Christ Jesus. Amen. At this time, we're